Well, good morning. Um, still a little bit more, if you could. Thanks. Good morning. Um, we are uh, continuing our series on First Corinthians, and uh, you may be disappointed to know that we are almost done with this subsection on human sexuality. Um, don't worry, we'll talk even more about it when we go through uh, things like marriage and singleness in all of chapter 7. But for now, we are almost at the end. As you remember, the very first week talked about why we're talking about this. The fact is that we are in a time where uh, the church is divided over questions of human sexuality. Uh, the church is, in fact, quite divided, and that division is rancorous, that division has been painful, that division has caused all kinds of difficulties. And we think there's an opportunity for us to promote the unity of the body of Christ, to promote health in the church, by understanding as well as we can, as generously as we can, as respectfully and graciously as we can, the different ways that different people understand these ethical issues and some of the passages in Scripture that inform them. I talked about in the second week about two sidelines, the sidelines that we need to stay within, unlike Mike Tomlin, the sidelines of ensuring that we are not saying that sex is always bad. That might have been the case during certain times in the medieval era. You might have thought, if you listened to the greatest of teachers, that Sex was a necessary evil to be tolerated if absolutely necessary for the propagation of the species. And yet what we find in Scripture is that God created male and female and was not at all surprised that they did what they did. In fact, he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And our record of what Adam said when he saw his wife was, wow, this is great. We also have to recognize that sex is not always good, and we're living in a society where it's more likely that we need to say that more often and more loudly, that every aspect of our lives is tainted by sin, every single area of our lives. We are broken. We are bent. We are desperately in need of God's grace to transform us into his image, and that is not something where our sexuality is accepted, E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D, accepted. Our sexuality is also in need of redemption, of transformation. In the third week, I talked about the two end zones, the traditional understanding of human sexuality, which is that it is to be expressed in the context of lifelong heterosexual marriage. That those who are not in marriage relationship may be called permanently to celibacy, which would be the other end zone. And while they're playing the game, playing the field, so to speak, they should be living accordingly. That sex is to be celebrated only in the context of a monogamous heterosexual marital relationship. That those who are not married should not live like they're married, and those who are married should not live like they're not married. But I then 
the following week talked about a variation on that, perhaps, or perhaps an utter perversion of it. Namely, the idea that it is not only heterosexual marriage that ought to be recognized as appropriate, but also homosexual marriage. Those holding this view would say that all the reasons Paul gives us for why marriage is good for a man and a woman apply equally to a marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And some would say that the reason Paul had such negative things to say about homosexuality and homosexual conduct in his letters is because Paul had simply never encountered a mature, mutually consenting adult homosexual couple. For Paul, homosexuality meant pagan practices, the kinds of wicked things that Gentiles do. Paul would have known homosexual practice as the sort of thing that happened when a person abused his slaves because he had every right to do so, or when prostitution was involved. So if Paul had had any encounter at all with mature, godly, homosexual people wanting to marry one another, these people say, he would have been happy to see them married. In fact, he would have said that they should be married. For as he says in chapter 7, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now others, that's what we talked about last week, would say, no, it's really hard to imagine Paul 2,000 years ago blessing a homosexual marriage. But if we could resurrect Paul today, if we could have Paul come back and know everything that we know from the course of church history, everything we know from science, everything we know from the experience of people who experience same-sex attraction who are in the church, if Paul knew all of that, then he would say no. It's appropriate to apply the things that I've said about heterosexual marriage to same-sex marriage. But of course, there are people, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that it is appropriate to build a Christian ethic of human sexuality, even if it means disagreeing with what Paul would say 2,000 years ago or with what he would say today. Remember a conversation I had with a distinguished academic. And he asked why my evangelical community, our evangelical community, has traditionally been disapproving of same-sex activity. I said, well, there's just a number of places in Scripture where it seems to be condemned, where it seems to be forbidden, and although people have tried valiantly to read those passages in other ways, it's, it's really hard to think that Paul or Jesus would have approved of this. And his answer was, well, so what? This person is not only an academic, this person is a leader in his congregation, in a progressive denomination. He said, so what? Why do I have to care what Paul said? Can't I just disagree with him? Dale Martin, who teaches New Testament at Yale, who's a very fine scholar, says in his book, when he talks about this issue, he says, my goal is not to deny that Paul condemned homosexual acts, 
but to highlight the ideological contexts in which such discussions have taken place. My goal is to dispute appeals to what the Bible says as a foundation for Christian ethical arguments. It really is time to cut the Gordian knot of fundamentalism and do not be fooled any argument that tries to defend its ethical position by an appeal to what the Bible says without explicitly acknowledging the agency and contingency of the interpreter is fundamentalism. We must simply stop giving that kind of argument any credibility. Gary Dorian, who teaches at Union Seminary in New York, wrote a magisterial three-volume history of liberal theology. He says that the core commitment of liberal theology is a rejection of external authority. And he says this favorably. That's his tradition. That's what he celebrates. Whether it's the authority of a teaching magisterium or it's the authority of Scripture, he says that the liberal posture, also known as the progressive approach, is to say that we can and we should and we must go beyond what we find in Scripture toward a superior ethic. And so there are basically three, broadly speaking, three ethical options that people will construct based on this. The first I'll describe as as serial monogamy. The idea that sex is to be experienced and enjoyed and celebrated in a committed relationship that is characterized by exclusivity. It's characterized by fidelity. You should be with one person at a time, but over the course of a lifetime, you should probably expect that you will be with more than one person. Folks like this will have marriage vows that say, as long as we both shall love, instead of as long as we both shall live. These commitments are understood to potentially be temporary, not permanent. And this view does have some strengths. For one, it certainly would be the least socially destructive of the various perspectives I'll I'll share. It does encourage things like fidelity and retaining an exclusive commitment to another person. It is somewhat rigorous, and I think we should be suspicious considering the high standard that we are called to in so many other areas of, of life. We should be suspicious of any sexual ethic that is not difficult, that does not seem to involve transformation on our part. We expect that our attitudes about money and time, about our careers, we expect that some of that is going to be hard, that we're going to be challenged to live up to it. We should probably expect that of a sexual ethic as well. And the truth is this does fit common experience. In a day when more and more people marry later and later, when people have the experience of living with multiple people and when people have the experience of having several marriages during the course of their life, this approach seems to fit what reality is for a lot of folks. But this view does, of course, have weaknesses. As for the idea that it's the least socially destructive, I think if you read the Gospels fairly, you have to realize that about the last thing Jesus was concerned about was being socially disruptive. I remember uh, calling a friend who's a New Testament scholar 
and uh, we were while I was at seminary, we were having a discussion about how uh, how controversial it would have been and how scandalous it would have been for Jesus to have in his band of traveling companions not only men but women. And he said, Jason, there wasn't nothing respectable about the early Jesus movement. So socially destructive is not necessarily the standard we have to follow. A big problem with this approach has to do not with so much with relationships as with interstices between them. That is, what happens when you transition from relationship A to relationship B? Quite often that involves beginning relationship B before you have entirely exited from relationship A, which would transgress that commitment to exclusivity. And I think this does perhaps provide too easy a way out. Just because it fits our common experience doesn't mean that our common experience is good. Another approach is to hold to what I call a, a mutual consent model. A scholar named Marvin Ellison puts it this way. He says that accepting sexual touch as a moral, research, a moral resource flies in the face of racist patriarchal norms. However, mutual pleasuring undertaken with tenderness and respect is a crucial, though widely neglected, component of Christian moral formation. In other words, what he says is that the pleasurable experience of sexual contact contact should actually be determinative in figuring out whether that's something you ought to be doing. He doesn't quite come out and say, if it feels good, do it. But that really is where it ends up. The idea is that as long as this contact happens by mutual consent, as long as nobody is being exploited, nobody's being taken advantage of, nobody's being abused, nobody's being harmed, then any sort of sexual expression is fine. So, for example, Ellison would approve of the idea of an open marriage, where people are married to one another, but agree that they may also be intimate with other people. Now, the strength of this view, for one, is that it really does fit well with our contemporary notions of human agency. The idea that, hey, they're consenting adults. If that's the way they want to live, who am I to say that they shouldn't? It does emphasize relationality. And he, he talks at length in his article about the idea that any changes to the relationship would have to be negotiated and mutually agreeable, that the people who started off with a relationship on one terms and moved it to different terms would have to be in accord on that. And that that negotiation, that interaction, provides an opportunity for mutual understanding and for intimacy. And this, frankly, fits even better. The common experience that people have of often desiring to be with people other than the one you're with. This could, perhaps, provide an ethical way for you to have your cake and eat it too, or, as I remember it was put in a very bad comedy from the 80s, to have your cake and eateth too. But this has significant weaknesses to it. First of all, uh, there's an important party whose consent is not solicited in this view, namely Almighty God. 
just because two people agree that something is a good idea and is mutually beneficial does not mean that it is. And I think the likelihood of successfully negotiating changes in a relationship over the course of time is not something that I would put a whole lot of stock in. Usually, in these sorts of situations, one person is far more interested than the other in exploring sexual boundaries. I find it difficult to see how this could be something that draws people together and promotes love and mutual respect rather than undermining it. And I think the biggest weakness of this, in terms of just human experience, is that it does not account for the very real and very common phenomenon of regret. The times that people wake up in the morning, having been engaged the night before, in adult, mutually consensual activity, and wishing they hadn't. Just because two grown-ups decide that something's a good idea doesn't mean that it's a good idea. And that can be demonstrated when people look back on that decision with regret. A third approach, a third liberal ethic of human sexuality applies what I call the love ethic. Basically, uh, James Nelson says that the alternative to sexual legalism is not laxity and license, but an ethic grounded in the centrality of love. Such an ethic is based on the conviction that human sexuality finds its intended and most profound expression in the kind of love that enriches the humanity of persons and expresses faithfulness to God. Such an ethic cannot guarantee freedom from mistakes in the sexual life but it aims to serve and not to inhibit the maturation and human becoming of sexual persons. So somebody like Nelson would say, well, Paul just didn't understand how powerful love can be. And understanding that love is the most important thing is what enables us to put all of these other things we read in proper perspective. It's this move more broadly, that enables people to move beyond, to progress beyond what God has given us in Scripture. And it's a plenty flexible approach. I mean, frankly, taking words like love or justice, those are buckets that can carry pretty much anything you want to pack into them. And it makes it, I would say, easy to read any text pretty much the way you want to read it and to justify something because of love. For that reason, it's, it's tough to argue against, frankly. And in a lot of ways, it sounds awesome, right? I mean, we're doing this for love. The weaknesses, though, I think are pointed to in Scripture, for one. And again, I, even if you don't take Scripture as authoritative, you, I think, have to recognize in the story of the fall our common human experience. And Eve is tempted to eat the apple. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, 
and he ate it. When we're tempted to sin, the sin always has one, if not more, of those elements to it, that it is good for food. There's always something that seems useful, that seems like it could be productive about doing something we shouldn't do or failing to do something we should. There's something attractive about it, something that draws our eye, something that feels good, that's pleasing to the eye or to other organs. And also, and this is so profound, desirable for gaining wisdom. It is very, very easy to find some noble, overarching cause that would justify our succumbing to temptation. And love is the sort of thing that easily fits into that. The second weakness is that it just ends up basically weird, right? So the cover of your bulletin is funny, but it's not all that far off from where a number of scholars are in terms of their understanding of Christ. For example, Patrick Cheng says that the second Christological model of sin and grace for LGBT people is the out-Christ. The out-Christ arises out of the reality that God reveals God's self most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, God comes out of the closet in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord willing, I will not be here five weeks from now. I will be in San Antonio for the annual meetings of the Society of Biblical Literature and the American Academy of Religion. I need to come back on Monday, so I will miss the 4 o'clock sessions on Monday, including, tragically, the meeting of the gay men and religion group with the theme, Unruly Gay Bodies, Theological and Ethical Rethinking About How Gay Men Relate Sexually and Otherwise and to Others. So I will not be exposed to the paper by Robin Henderson Espinoza and Jared Vasquez titled Friends with Benefits, Exploring the Cusp of the Intimacies of Relating Through an Investigation of Race, Class, Sexuality, and Gender. I will be bereft of the benefits that would come from attending Jason Frey's paper, Unruly Risks a Queer Ethic of Intimacy, Otherness, and Bare Back Vulnerability. And I will have to ask Richard Lindsay to send me a copy of his paper, The Classical Alibi and the Formation of Gay Male Spiritual Discourse in Mid-Century Softcore Pornography. Most tragic is the fact that I will miss the paper by Nathan Kennedy, where three or more are gathered gay polyamorous friendship as an ecclesial phenomenon which in English means when you have three or more gay men having sex, that's where the church is. I don't make this stuff up. I just read it. <laughs> the American Academy of Religion. I tend to go to the, most of the papers with a society of biblical literature, which is less weird. But the biggest problem with this view is what Paul points out. And again, I take Paul as authoritative. I take him seriously. That's our, our deal here at New Hope. But you don't have to have an understanding of Scripture as inerrant to recognize the wisdom of some of the things that Paul says about human sexuality. He tells the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. 
that you should be holy, that you should live in a way that's set apart from the rest of the world, that you should avoid porneia, sexual immorality. There is such a thing, Paul says, as sexual immorality, and you should avoid it, not run to it. Each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Paul says our bodies are given to us for good. We can honor God. We can control our stuff. That's what we're called to. In chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, I know Joe's going to take a different angle on this when he preaches on Bring a Friend Sunday. So for one, you don't have to worry that you're going to bring a friend and hear about this for half an hour. And for another, I'm not stealing Joe's thunder. Paul says, yes, quote-unquote, everything is permissible for me. This is a place in the letter where the Corinthians are kind of quoting slogans at Paul, and Paul's quoting the back and saying, yes, but you've completely misunderstood that. Just because everything is lawful doesn't mean everything is a good idea. doesn't mean everything's good for you. Sure, everything's lawful for me, but I can't let myself be mastered by anything. Yes, God made food to satisfy our hunger. God made sexual relations to satisfy our desires to be intimate. But all of that is temporary. All that's going to pass away. God will destroy them both. The fact is the body is not meant for porneia. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. He made us this way. He doesn't give us these rules, this guidance, this teaching to take away our joy. He gives it to us to give it to us. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead. He's going to raise us also. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? So am I then going to take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? No. Don't you know that the person who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? And you know what's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee, Paul says. Flee sexual immorality. One translator says, avoid sexual immorality like the plague Run away from it. Yes, Paul says, it's true. All sins that a person commits are outside the body, but actually, whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Don't you know that that body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? And this, as I promised, is Paul's different way of describing The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Early on in the letter, he talked about the body, the church, as the temple of the Spirit, a place where the Spirit dwells. Here, he's saying that you, your physical body, each of you individually, the bodies you inherit, inhabit. These bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. I think of what a rabbi friend said to me about the way his tradition understands tattoos. You know, there's a 
passage in Torah that says you shall not make any marks on your body. And so traditionally Jews understand that to mean no tattoos. And he says that, yes, you could read that as being a way to set yourself apart from the wicked pagans nearby who are doing that kind of thing. And certainly, given the experience of the Holocaust, tattoos carry a special negative resonance for our Jewish brothers and sisters. But he said the real reason he thinks it's there is that God wants to remind you that your body isn't really yours. Your body is his. You're not at liberty to do as you see fit with your body. Rather, you are to honor and glorify God with everything that is in you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, everything that is in you. So in many ways, the question when we construct a Christian ethic of sexuality shouldn't be what can we do and what can we not do, but what does it look like for us to honor God with our bodies? What kind of people is God creating us to be in regard to how we exercise our enfleshed lives? Let's pray. Father, I know well the many ways in which I fail to honor you with my body. I know the many ways in which I treat this body you've given me with disrespect. I ask your forgiveness. Pray that you would help me to see the ways in which I can honor and glorify you with this body you've given me not simply gratify its desires. I ask this for my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, here at New Hope, and all throughout the church. Amen.